Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum where we explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matsur Glode. Today I sit down with John Ainsworth, President and CEO of Bonify, a company delivering a trusted peer-to-peer services network of verifiable exchange for financial cooperatives. John comes to Bonify from MasterCard, where he was Executive Vice President of North American Markets, responsible for managing the independent bank and credit union segments. He comes with a wealth of experience as a strategy leader in that space. Now, during this conversation, we discuss John's learnings from Visa regarding the formation of organizations based on decentralized governance structures and cooperative models. We talk about how Bonify is using verifiable credentials as a digital transformation mechanism for credit unions to increase engagement with their members. We talk about Bonify's products such as MemberPass, which sets to revolutionize how credit unions say hello to their members, and also CUFX, the newly acquired Bonify organization which develops highly efficient system integration standards that connects various applications such as online banking, lending, IVR, all of these to core processing systems. Now, without further ado, here's my much-enjoyed conversation with John Ainsworth. Enjoy. So unlike most banks who are owned by investors and operate as for-profit institutions, meaning they must make profit for investors, um, and this is some background for for folks who maybe aren't as familiar as a lot of Americans are with with credit unions. But credit unions, unlike the banks, are non for profit, and are owned by their members, which is a key distinction. And according to the Credit Union National Association, there's about 120 million Americans that belong to a credit union, which is over a third of all Americans. Just to show you how how large this space is. Um, back to banks. Uh, Larger banks, just to show a bit of distinction, larger banks may also subject you <laughs> to, to bad customer service is one of the things that comes up a lot. Um, as And I, I think a lot of people could relate to this, that many banks are inflexible in their customer service because the rules are not set locally. Rather, they're enforced by national board, board of directors and executive leadership. And myself personally, having worked for a large US bank in a previous life of mine and having worked in call centers, <laughs> I was definitely able to see areas of improvement, especially for how we interact with customers um, to make experiences more frictionless and make them, I guess, more consistent across various channels. And today's customer service is more complex than ever when you know customer service maybe over the last year or so is, has been done a little less in person, but customer service is done through branches, it's done through online banking, through call centers, through social media chat, through secured email, and the list goes on. Um, And then on the flip side, credit unions are known for providing better customer service, and they look to serve their membership being more flexible when it comes to, to member needs. And so votes regarding customer service issues could also be influenced by these account owners, the members of the credit union, who also have equal voting rights. So that being said, I will still make an assumption here that although customer service and credit unions could be generally better than within large banks, I'm sure there still are many opportunities for improvements to delight members even more, to build more loyalty, advocacy, and stronger relationships. And so today, digital transformation solutions are available for for these mediums that can not only connect all the interactions with customers or members, but also reduce stressors for both sides when it comes to fears of phishing, account takeovers, other various frauds that we kind of are scared scared of and we deal with in our everyday lives. So with stuff like verifiable credentials and distributed ledger technology, um, a financial institution can know it's dealing with me 
just as I can know I'm dealing with them. And so when your customers or members win in these situations, you as an organization win. Um, so that was just a bit of background for listeners here who maybe aren't as familiar with credit unions um, based on, on where they're located in. And I guess before diving into this with you, John, um, I felt a good place to maybe start would be to jump back a little bit in time and talk about a business leader, or innovator, I know you respect tremendously and know very well, D Hawk, for those who don't know, D is the founder of Visa. Um, I would love to hear why D's story really um, stuck with you and why he's been so influential uh, in, in, your, in your life and your career, John. No, fantastic. Well, first, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting, and I appreciate the history you offered on the, on the credit unions. Most, most people don't know the original credit union actually was in the 1850s out of Germany. And uh, really, the, the 19th century uh, credit unions had flourished in, in Europe before they, they uh, actually migrated over to the U.S. And, and part of that really was um, reference to inclusion. You know, it was very much practically several people around the room. Some had money to lend, some needed to lend, and they couldn't participate in the ecosystem. And, and thus how kind of the movement was born. Um, I bring that background to D because most people don't realize, but um, originally Visa was an association franchise. It, it was effectively a non-for-profit as well. And so although it was obviously the largest payment system, most people assumed it was a for-profit corporation. And, and at that time it was not, it was an association um, with membership. And <clears throat> so I had, uh, D had retired uh, by the time I was at Visa, but very much a mentor. And when we started CU Ledger and we were looking at this kind of as a journey, I reached out to Dee, um, who's very, very uh, humble gentleman. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, Dee, if, if you had the ability to service a, a customer group that was um, for good, um, good heart and institutions that were cause oriented and not for profit, and you got to start completely from scratch, you didn't have to go in and, and redesign a Bank of America, um, what would you do different? Um, and, and that's actually how the conversation started. And uh, he graciously invited me to his home out in Olympia, Washington, and spent some time with him just reflecting. And, and the connection was Dee's original strategy was to create the platform for the exchange of value. And value could be whatever it became. And so it's amazing that, you know, now 60 plus years before even the foray of anything digital, um, D already had in his mind that there would be the need of some platform exchange for value. And so that was really what kind of was enticing about with the technologies that we have with us, um, you know, his original vision actually is still being accelerated. So that was kind of the backdrop. Um, equally important, he wrote, he wrote a book with the principle of chaotic, a chaotic thinking. And, you know, how do you have just this chaotic environment in a coordinated fashion? And so that was a second um, element. And, and the third, just from a corporate mindset, when he retired from Visa, he was uh, given a grant to go survey uh, the world's most effective organizations. And he literally took a couple of years and just went across the world and just surveyed just how organizations um, were effective. And, and as you would expect from a guy that created Visa non-traditional, for example, one of his top five was um, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. That was one of the most effective organizations in the globe. And his reason for stating that, you know, they had a very clear mission. Um, they had very high success rate. Um, there was no hierarchy, those types of attributes. And so just from an organizational culture, 
Um, I found it very inspiring. And uh, D's 92 now has helped us start to get a little bit of him. Uh, we actually introduced him how to Zoom. So he, he actually, the first time was on trying to, you know, move head movement to see, you know, can you see me now? Um, and he still tweets, so, um, you know, you can certainly follow him. But, but those were some of the, I think, qualities that um, just really, you know, stuck with me in the early days and I think are very still relevant today. While reading his book, which was absolutely excellent, I would recommend it to, to, to all of the listeners and can maybe link it in the show notes. Um, I think that there was one point in the book too, where he's just asking himself kind of what, what can, what really is money? Like, uh, and it was quite funny while reading through this. And I, I can't really remember when it was in the mid nineties or something that he published the book or wrote the book, right. but yep. it's just, it gets you thinking about just new mediums of experience like cryptocurrencies and stuff like that as you're reading it where he really nails really nails the core of it yeah it's fascinating that it can be so clairvoyant you know now that we're talking about digital currencies and um you know again when he started thinking about that none of this really existed you know so if d d thought alcoholics anonymous was one of the strongest organizations for um i guess the, the clear mission and the flatter decentralized um decision-making process. Is this something that um, having worked for Visa and, and MasterCard, are, are those things that, that you found apply there too? And how have you kind of applied these principles to uh, Bonfi? So it's a great, great question. Um, you know, actually uh, for some season after Visa going to MasterCard, I actually went when MasterCard became public. And so watching a company transition from an association membership model into an actual for-profit model uh, there were a lot of learnings in that as well. And certainly having the availability of capital to do a lot of things that, you know, you wanted to do, but you just didn't have the resources. That was a great thing. Um, but you have a different group of shareholders, right? So in the sense of a membership organization, um, you have a different kind of uh, corporate objective as, as, you know, a Fortune 100 for-profit company. So there were learnings along the way. Um, for, for me, what's really interesting, our model is called a CUSO, Credit Union Services Organization. Um, and we're actually an LLC by nature, but I describe we're profit minded. We obviously have to, to make money, but we're not profit motivated. And that's the same characteristic as the original association model. So in that sense, we are very fortunate that, um, you know, our, our owners um, have an agenda to make sure that we um, are a little more broad than just our, our you know, company profits. So that model is very similar to the original Visa association model. So that's kind of how I would equate it. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And for, from just reading kind of the inception of, um, of Bonafide or Sea Ledger, I guess, as it was uh, at the time, um, it, it's an organization that spun out from various credit unions that kind of invested into this uh, new entity. And so when we think about kind of this flat member base, the members are the leadership of the credit unions, in fact. Yep. No, and it was interesting. This, this did start from a research to action. So there was originally around 70 credit unions, um, several actually from Canada as well. So, you know, hey, could, we could, you know, contribute some seed money to see if we could find a use case for an emerging technology, in this case, blockchain. And the original use case was to try to solve back office call center fraud. So that was kind of the original um, design, if you would. And out of that became a, a you know, commercialized product. And, um, you know, we've evaluated a number of blockchain use cases and, and you followed the hype market along with the rest of the world. And so, um, you know, for us, um, decentralized identity, specifically SSI was one where we landed and felt like there was, um, you know, a lot of legitimacy and benefit. 
Yeah, so it started off as a research to action with, with 70 and it's grown from there. I, I, you know, going back to D, it was really interesting. I made a comment to him. I said, you know, this is an interesting journey for us. And he said, why, why would you use the word journey? And uh, he said, I would use the word odyssey. And I'm like, well, that's intriguing. Why, why do you say that? And he said, well, on a journey, um, you know exactly where you're going. Um, someone's been there before and you're following that path. And he said, an odyssey, you don't have a map. Uh, no one's ever been there. You just have a sense of direction. And so I think that very much describes us in the early days. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting connotation for kind of our company and, and how we're evolving. I, I love that odyssey rather than journey. So I, so if the first use case was just really combating uh, call center fraud uh, because of uh, maybe poor back office back office processes or, or controls. Uh, how has that kind of evolved? What is the the mission today of Bonify? So it's so a great question. So so we are committed to having a platform of exchange, and you'll see kind of the connotations back to 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 D, and that could be an exchange of credentials. So in this sense of how we're discussing, uh, it could be an exchange of data, or it could be an exchange of value. And so for us in the journey of verifiable credentials is very much what we're centered on right now. And the practical use case of that today is just the friction with how I interact with my financial institution. You know, if I call, then I have one set of frustrations without a wallet questions, et cetera. If I, you know, if I go into a branch and even right now with the pandemic of a mask, you know, I've got one way for identifying myself. If I log in, it's something different and I'll have any frictional pain points. Um, so that's the practical use case. And I could talk more about where we see the opportunity, but it was uh, really, you know, how do you, how do you deliver value today, but yet you're still actually moving towards tomorrow. And obviously everyone's been victims of cyber, um, you know, security and, and et cetera. So we all know about the breaches and the problems with that. So we, we think the safety and security for our members is very much um, a priority. So it's a frictionless, safe, securing experience, um, but yet in a, in a privacy preserving way. What I find really interesting about the, the verifiable credentials and, and what you're talking about here is just, um, there's a good place to start. Like if you want to start for security of members and really give them peace of mind that, um, that <laughs> there's going to be no fraud or they're safe or they're secure and they have that mindset. There's also so many other lenses you could look at this stuff from as well. I know uh, you could look at from uh, a data compliant uh, kind of uh, landscape. You, you could look at it right. from a fina financial compliant. Uh, you could look at it from better engagement. So it, it is today the focus, it still really is on cyber. Like I just, as Bonafide, we're really trying to reduce the fraud that happens with our, our, our member associations. Yeah, I would definitely say that's, that's the first part because again, privacy, um, every day it seems like the world is becoming more convinced of privacy privacy, as you, as you would call it. And, you know, we have not followed as fast in the states with some of the privacy requirements, um, you know, GDPR, et cetera, but certainly will be coming. And so, you know, privacy and security um, is very important. You know, it's, it, there's a coin being turned now, you know, privacy technology. You know, you had, you know, FinTech and RegTech, and now it's privacy tech. Um, but I think if you had to put it in one, that's where it would most appropriately fit. Yeah, I, uh, over and over again, I've said, I think definitely the the biggest feature or the biggest need in a product or, or in experiences of the 2020s is going to be privacy. Like you, you see it, you see it over and over again, even in, in the marketing from, from large organizations throughout the world that are putting priorities um, it, within their marketing messaging, but also within the way they design their products. And um, 
you could argue uh, how private things really are. But when you see companies like Apple, who, for example, are really um, trying to, to, to give control and transparency to their, their users, you know, that's kind of uh, the direction that everything is going in. No, it's fascinating. You know, what's interesting is, um, I don't know how familiar you are with Estonia, the, the country, um, but it's interesting. We actually have an ownership in the European uh, Credit Union Coalition uh, specifically the Baltics, and, and that was um, intentionally for Estonia. And Estonia, the entire country is on blockchain. And what's fascinating is being in an entirely digital country, how that works from the privacy standpoint, but still having that digital exchange. And it was just mind boggling. It wasn't futuristic, it was the way they operate. And if I wanted to apply for a loan, I simply gave permission um, you know, for one agent to basically get information from another agent. And I controlled it. I decided who and where that was that was shared. Um, but I didn't have you don't have to sign anything. It's completely paperless. And so just seeing that kind of ecosystem, um, it was really cool from a tech sense. You know, it obviously makes you raise a little eyebrows in terms of the, you know, who's who's controlling actually the exchange and all the other things around privacy that come with it. But um, yeah, I think you know now that we're we're all going digital overnight, you know, privacy has to be a continued um, focus. Yeah, the, the digital ID use case in Estonia is uh, a fascinating one. They're, they're really innovative in that space. I, I do wonder too if uh, just based on the size of the country and how I guess the government is definitely a little more central, centrally organized than the U.S. It might be something that's a little harder to <laughs> deploy no at, yeah, at, at large in the U.S. Um, so, so, so what was your journey with these transformative technologies? Like we talk about blockchain, we are distributed ledger technology, however we want to refer it to. We talk about digital ID. Um, for me personally, I started in the crypto web three blockchain space and kind of got moved into digital ID because it just became an enabler for all the other stuff that had to happen <laughs> in order for, for the blockchain uh, strategies to succeed. Is that similar for you? Yeah, sort of. You know, what's unique is um, this was kind of the fourth time I've been called kind of nutty. Um, you know, it's interesting. First, Visa was part of the group that was uh, with, with Debit and the relaunch of Debit. And at the time, you know, why would any sane person use Debit, right? That's just non-efficient use of money. Everybody uses credit, right? So that was kind of the first time. Um, you know, the second time was actually e-commerce. And uh, there were some of us that actually were, were around with the first e-commerce transaction of buying a pizza. You know, it's buying on an AL screen. I think it took like, you know, five minutes to actually get one transaction. But everyone was like, you know what, why do you need e-commerce? Why do you need mobile? You know, you can, you can just call in and get an authorization and mail them a check. And, uh, you know, the third one was kind of one I'd like to take back. That was around EMV chip. Like everybody's like, what? You know, Max Strike works great. Why would you ever need a chip? And so this is kind of the fourth one, and, you know, with blockchain, they're like, oh my gosh, blockchain. And, you know, the, the crypto part obviously, you know, has a lot of passion and emotion around it, but the underpinnings of being able to have peer-to-peer -peer direct interaction and not have to have third-party intermediaries, that was very um, compelling to me. And so just understanding, you know, what does that enable when you and I can have a peer-to-peer -peer relationship and we determine how we interact with each other and what we provide um, that that's a game changer, you know. So that's really what what got me attracted to it. I I think most most of the internet today, when you look at it, is just I guess most of the internet economy is really driven by e-commerce, like like you mentioned, and, and the advertising industry. But we're now that fourth wave you described, which is more about uh, digital trust, um, being able to have the, this two-way authentication and exchange of data. 
I think that probably in combination with mobile and mobile connectivity is uh, extremely powerful uh, in the use cases that, that you're, you're building around. And so what is MemberPass for those who aren't uh, familiar with MemberPass and, and what's role, what, what, what is the role that the MemberPass product plays within your entire vision? No, sure. So, so MemberPass actually is, is an app and it's a digital app that bases, you know, allows me to provide proof of my membership. It's a financial passport. So if you think about you're hearing about travel pass and you know health pass, you know this is a financial pass, and that enables me to basically access my financial services no matter how I interact with you. So whether I'm on telephone or I'm walking in or I'm driving in or I'm logging in, it's that financial passport that allows you that kind of safe entry, if you would, to all of your financial services. So that that's member pass. So would a member of a credit union, they would use this when they're interacting with customer service. That's a fair kind of, that, that could be one use case when I'm calling into the call center. Yep. And, and, you know, it's interesting if you look at any of these channels and kind of an isolated basis, you can quickly start to say, you know, how this compares to other emerging technologies, but, but the fact that I can have an omni-channel consistent experience is part of it as well. So, so if I'm calling in, you know, instead of saying, you know, hey, great, you know, what's your dog's date of birth, et cetera, they just say, you know, hey, are you, are you on the phone with, right? And this is the prompt you get in your app and you say yes. Um, underneath the hood, obviously, we've got DLT, we've got biometrics, we've got enhanced cryptography, all of those things working to have that peer-to-peer -peer encrypted transaction. You know, equally important, if I'm not on the phone, then I actually just say no and, and it's killed. And so I, I laugh, you know, there's so much we spend on, you know, identity resolution, um, you know, it's like, well, how about, how about identity theft prevention? You know, that's, that's the real key, right, to stop it. Um, and then the fact that it's two-way, and it's really interesting. I, I got a call recently from, from my credit union, supposedly, and said, you know, hey, great news. Because of COVID, um, your um, mortgage, um, you know, payment has been extended for, for 90 days. Just give us these few pieces of information to get the process started. I'm like, sure. Uh, yeah, no thanks, right? Um, but you think about the average consumer mindset, and I mean, you don't know. So it's equally important that the financial institution knows that it's me, but also that I know it's them. And, you know, what's really interesting about the pandemic is it's actually accelerated because, you know, one, a lot of obviously the mask has been an interference with how I used to visually verify people. Um, but even like going through a drive-through, right? I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to give you anything physical anymore. I don't, nobody wants to touch anything contactless. And so all of those elements in terms of a, a frictionless experience and, you know, and happening under 20 seconds, um, you know, that's really kind of the, it's really more of a convenience, if you would, in a private and safe, secure way. That's the way we like to describe it. What were some of like the, the aha moments for, for these different credit unions when doing various pilots and stuff like that? Is, is this, was it the speed of authentication? Are there specific moments where you're kind of like, you being behind this stuff and really trying to mask, really trying to mask the DLT and the credentials and the tech because it doesn't matter. But like, what were really these aha moments? Uh, are there any that really stood out to you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And obviously we're still continuing to learn you know, the, the one, the, the inconsistency that financial institutions use to basically prove that you are who you say you are. And, you know, um, financial institutions are regulated from a know your customer KYC standpoint, right? So, so they're regulated on how they have to go through that process. So you would think that would be a fairly straightforward standard exercise. And what we found in reality is it's not. 
Some will use a verification to saying, okay, yeah, that's a physical ID, you know, it's a driver's license. Um, some will go a little more in terms of other third party verifications. Uh, but it really was enlightening how inconsistent they are in terms of knowing who their customers are to start with. So we came in and said, you know, hey, we're going to give you the golden ticket. We're going to allow them to access everything, wire transfers. And, you know, that that was fantastic. It's fantastic. But it also puts the um, burden to say, OK, I better know who John Ainsworth is before I give him the golden ticket, because um, otherwise I may have just let a bad character into the system. And so that learning for us is actually driving some of our product roadmap just to make sure that. You know, we're all focused on, um, you know, verification and, and, and you know, that, that type of thing. So the front end part was really the, the kind of acknowledgement. Um, what I will say also is that there's still confusion around all of the technology, right? Do we still get the blockchain? Is that cryptocurrency? And, you know, everybody gets wrapped on the tech and what that actually means. So that's that's been an evolution for us. Yeah, that's funny. It's funny that still today, um, uh, I, having been in the space for, for some time now, like around 2016, 2017, when, when we were building uh, DLT solutions, it really gets, it, it was getting tied together to, to Bitcoin and the overall crypto market. And it's just, it's funny, even though it has nothing to do with it, when the markets are hot in crypto, there's a lot of people that want to do blockchain or are ready to, 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 to listen to it. Whereas, the years that followed that blockchain became kind of a bad word yeah, <laughs> that you yeah, didn't, right. didn't even want to bring up in discussion. So it's like, well, what do I call it? Well, DLTs may be a little more friendly. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And then of course now decentralized, right? This, this kind of defining term. So yeah, it's amazing that you just think within three years, that's been kind of the whole cycle of, of you know, hype, if you, if you would, from the Gartner's hype cycle. Um, but the technology is fascinating. You know, there's, there's, you know, no argument of the benefits of the technology, especially around, you know, procurement and, and other supply chains and just, you know, massive impact. But, you know, you think of organizations that, you know, have spent billions and billions of dollars in research and kind of, you know, moved away from it. Um, you know, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, so I guess like uh, you had mentioned like the KYC, I think that is very interesting. And I've, I've heard you talk about this before where it's, um, know your customer today for most companies is just to check the box type of thing. I, I need to, I need to collect certain data attributes on a person and have some, some reliable source to justify that, that they are accurate. Right. And every few years I'll rerun this process again. Um, and I think with, with definitely the, the movement, especially over the past year, even more rapidly to online stuff, the whole document verification and just, EKYC space has blown up, but they seem to be missing the point where know your customer is not about checking the box. Know your customer is actually knowing your customer. Because if, if you know if your customer is, you, you'll be able to, uh, to to learn from them and, and offer them better products and services and delight them even more. So I, I think is that, so I guess then the whole concept of personalization comes into play too. Is that stuff that on the, the either member pass or the overall product strategy for Bonify um, is just improving the interactions with customers by actually knowing your customer. Like that, does that come into play? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, so, so the answer is yes. And it's interesting before I got into the payments career, I actually started as a correspondent banker, right? So we were as a large institution provided financial services to smaller institutions. 
and you know, not down to reveal my age, but we were, you know, not we didn't have the the benefit of empirical systems, right? It was kind of the old school five C's with credit, you know, capital capacity, et cetera. And so what what I'm intrigued by is the ability to offer these proofs, right? So in the sense of member pass, the, the proof we're offering is a proof of membership and, and financial well-being. But you start to think about the other proofs, you know, proof of employment, proof of income, you know, proof of, you know, whatever becomes relevant. Then you start to think for inclusion, I can start to look at things from my customer and maybe a little different perspective and not just what is their FICO score for lending. And so being able to have those proofs that help pull in those kind of attributes or, or characteristics, I think there's a tremendous opportunity there. Um, obviously, you have to start small and membership, that, that makes sense. But, you know, as you well know, from, from an SSI standpoint, the ability to have different proofs and the interoperability becomes really interesting from a technology standpoint. Um, and, and financial inclusion is really where my passion is, has been, always will be. There's 2 billion people sitting on the sidelines they're just waiting to be deployed and brought into the to the traditional system, but um, you know, being able to pull out those those proofs are really that's the that's the opportunity and it's also the challenge, you know. Maybe the opportunity for these two billion unbanked or however we want to call them to hopefully we're able to kind of jump a lot of the ways the traditional systems are today. I, I think there's you're seeing a lot of advancements in in kind of payments, for example, just because of the mobility and stuff like that. They're kind of able to skip. Hopefully that's what we could do with uh, with self-sovereign identity as well is give people appropriate proofs on a phone, on a card, however, but th which right. allows them to, to conduct transactions. Yep, whatever whatever form factor is the most convenient for them, right? Um, so so the, I guess that there's, you had mentioned the value of SSI definitely if, um, I think, we're seeing more and more movement and it kind of goes in cycles with technology between kind of uh, central and then decentral uh, methods. And it, we seem to be, although the whole cloud industry is still growing at a 40% rate per year or something, okay. um, that there, there is a lot of movement towards kind of these edge computing and movement to the edge. And this is where kind of SSI comes in too. And so, what is exciting, and you kind of alluded to that, is if I could collect different credentials from uh, different sources, um, then when I start talking about personalization or being able to, to have stronger interactions with my credit, for example, they can know me a lot better than they would today just on the limited information that they have about me. Um, yep. are, are there, I guess, as a starting point with the proof of membership, which is an awesome starting point, have, have you seen beyond the the credit unions uh, appetites to, to consume that credential that people are like, hmm, now that you actually have this available, hey, maybe uh, maybe I could use this. Well, we, we have, what's interesting is if you think about the trust source of a credential, um, you know, it's, it's arguable that, you know, financial institutions, um, KYC credential is one of the strongest trusts you have, you know, probably the only one that would be stronger would be a government issued credential, right? So because of the regulatory burdens that happen, um, you know, we have a lot of inquiries from other partners are like, you know, hey, we would love to use your credential for our verification. Um, and it's interesting um, from a business model, it reminded me back in the early days when uh, we were in payments with Hertz, right? Rental car, rental car, instead of go through all the risk evaluation, we just said, you know, hey, we'll use the payment card as a credential for, you know, basically allowing you to, to rent a car. 
Because if you think about that concept of that credential from a financial institution, it has a lot of power and you, you quickly end up into the monetization conversation, which sounds a lot like interchange, right? So who's issuing the credential, what's the trust level and who's actually verifying what's the exchange of value. So you get really, really quickly into a familiar model from the early days, right? So, but there's a lot of value in having a financially backed KYC credential just because of all the diligence and requirements they have to go through. I feel like just having spent a good amount of time over the past couple of years now in digital identity, like there's obviously a lot of different verticals. Um, one of the spaces that's still growing, but a little more mature is just the, the IAM space, like the Octas of the world and the, these big yeah. IAM software providers that um, their revenue model is fantastic because the, 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 <laughs> they, 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 they get you locked in plugged into your systems and then they're charging you reoccurring based on your users every month phenomenal um yeah, phenomenal uh, which is why the the valuations they have are, are, are what they are um there, there's another space that is is like on fire right now it's rapidly growing it's just the whole um i guess just the the digitization of, of government issued documents where because the governments aren't issuing digital IDs for their citizens, you, you have these these me methods of doing OCR and add uh, liveness testing to it and add whatever IP these companies have to do a matching and right. the bo boost the reliability score. Um, the, the business model for these are different than on the IAM side, the IAM that are getting the reoccurring, I feel like uh, that this other space, the newer one I just, just described is very, it's very transactional, right? Is that um, the big use cases being remote account opening, stuff like that is I, I, I need to do a verification there. Right. Um, so in, in your world, in your ecosystem, who, who is providing kind of this, this initial KYC credential, or I, I guess it might fall within the proof of membership, which assumes the KYC has been done. Um, are the credit unions themselves providing this and do they see value for monetization kind of like, uh, Downstream yeah, it's a from great there. question. It's it, it's it's you know uh, a little bit longer answer than than you know probably one might want. But the short answer is right now the financial institutes credit they're providing that KYC credential, right? So they've already they already have you as a customer. They've already had some level of of you know uh, whether it be a deposit relationship lending or whatever. So they are, they are actually on the hook for for the KYC liability. So that's that's the model for us. Now the utility to help them inform that KYC decision is something that we actually um, offer utility, right? So there's other proofs, you know, whether it be your ID, whether it be your phone number, whether it be your address, you know. So all of those helping them to basically make that KYC. So that's the model today. Um, I, I will say because of the world going digital and the traditional models of where something walking into a branch basically open account or broken, that's causing different conversations now in terms of who's actually facilitating that KYC kind of verification, if you would. Um, we recently announced a, a partnership through um, another fintech with IDPAL, right, who does a lot of that type of, of work. And, and you're seeing there's a lot of great providers out there. So, you know, how can you assist that? Synthetic fraud is, is huge right now. So the traditional ways of KYC verification are, um, are, are not exactly bulletproof. But right now it's the credit union that ultimately has the decision and we've been given power tools to basically help that, you know, inform them. If, if you look at the, um, 
kind of a, a customer life cycle. I don't know if you've ever seen this infinity diagram um, oh, where, oh, yeah, on, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we like to use that uh, in presentations to, to get the, this point across, but on, on one side of it, it's kind of the, the whole, um, the whole marketing customer acquisition, uh, marketing sales customer acquisition kind of side till you get to the onboarding. And then on the other side, it's it's once the customer is onboarded or acquired, it's more how do you support and serve serve them. Right. And th th that's an area that, that interests me a lot too is like, and then back to kind of this transactional model that's there today is kind of like um, these, ID pal or whoever, it's very transactional. I'm helping you onboard your customer and check the box to do KYC. But now, now that I've actually invested in doing this KYC and I have this thing, how, there's so much utility to have that reused across different interactions. So it seems like for, for, for you guys to, to remember past, like a very, um, um, the very simple first use case is just authentication that, um, yeah. independent of the channel that you're in, I, I could give assurance to the customer that they're dealing with us and, and, and vice versa. Um, are, are there other use cases that are on your roadmap or you're looking at beyond authentication for kind of just future value creation? There, there are. Um, I do want to capture a point you just mentioned because it's fascinating to me. You know, we've all spent most of our lives in the tech world creating these kind of silos, right? I mean, that's, you know, big data, right? I mean, that was, you know, V's in that. I mean, the whole point of having these big, you know, honeypots was because I had the data and I could do things with it, right? Monetize, exchange, or whatever. You know, for me, basically saying I'm going to be in the model to where we're going to provide the exchange of data, but I don't capture it and I don't hold it. That's that was kind of revolutionary to me, right? So it just it's kind of a disruptive model. What's interesting, so on the financial institution side, you know, we were making the point that they actually have the KYC data, which is very powerful, and it's that use of data that's enabling maybe some of these other you know opportunities, but. At the same time, financial institutions are not well known for being able to manage your data. So they're sitting there with kind of the primary relationship with the primary data and the primary opportunity, but not really having the tools or resources actually to help um, either, you know, on their own sales and learnings, you think about AI and other you know, opportunities, but even for their customers, you know, it's like you're in the driver's seat, you didn't even know it. And so, you know, they have a, you know, more of a responsibility for that KYC knowing your customer. And so it's, it's fascinating to me that that model is changing. And so to your point of, well, what, what might that look like? Well, think of loyalty, for example, where, you know, everyone has been in the points game and right, you had everyone doing the traditional kind of points model. Well, if it's my data as a consumer and I control it and I decide where and how I want it to be used, I, I might be willing to, um, you know, let a, a marketer or another you know, retail company use it. Um, but I would want something for that. I would want some value exchange, discounts or whatever. So you just think about the potential of loyalty uh, that's something that we've been investigating heavily. Because again, if I'm in control and it's my data and I'm given the permission of, of who, where, and, and how it can be used, then, then I should be in kind of the driver's seat of where I see value and how that could actually benefit me. Super interesting. Uh, yeah, we use that a lot interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the tough thing. You, you, you come up with so many interesting and like super disruptive models but then it's just like how, how do i just take a, a baby step <laughs> to, well, and that's, to, you know now you see why we were you know leveraging more of contact center and you know how you interact is kind of a, of a first use case because you know as you know in technology I, I mean it's so easy to get ahead of yourself in terms of your ambitions and 
you know, you have to walk before you can run. And, and, you know, I look at things like 5G and quantum now, and then with two or three years, I'm firmly convinced there's going to be a whole new set of dynamics that we're thinking through, you know, it's, it's happening so fast. That's why we can't keep up with uh, all the stuff that comes out. Uh, so just focusing on one of these areas every day, if it's crypto or blockchain or SSI or whatever, it's just uh, difficult to keep up the speed with all the movements. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. The other uh, industry you had asked about, which is kind of interesting, is around cannabis. And for us in the States, that's kind of new. The legalization is kind of a new market. Um, but if you look at the tenants, um, you know, one, I need to verify, obviously, in terms of transactions and who's purchasing and who's selling, uh, the audibility of those transactions and the financial reporting. And so that's an industry that's actually coming up as a large opportunity in the States. Um, and, you know, again, very well suited for, for kind of DLT. So... Um, we're not advocating we're, you know, all the political you know, aspects of it, but in terms of commerce, that's a really interesting use case that we've been asked to evaluate. Um, and then crypto, of course. And um, you know, we'll say the environment here is changing in terms of you know, can you use it for more efficient movement, right? stable coin, that type of thing. Um, so that's something that we're, you know, we're, we're evaluating down the road as well. Yeah, the, the cannabis one is, is an interesting one. We, we kind of... Um... In, in being in Canada, we're faced with that uh, a few years ago as the, the it was becoming rec recreationally illegal, where it's kind of like people all of a sudden are very scared uh, for, from a compliance standpoint. But um, a lot of the other use cases, too, that are interesting is just the um, you mentioned the auditability is is which comes from, I guess, the, the transparency in, inside of a supply chain. And we, we saw tons of benefits for CPGs, which is where, where we saw really the money being as, as everyone was getting into the, um, into the, the farming game or the, the growing game, but the, the real value really lies at the brand. And if, if you as a brand are able to um, give consumers that transfer, transparency and auditability and verifiability into the supply chain to say my, my product is superior than my competitors or it was grown organically or ethically or, or whatever right. there's a lot of opportunities there yeah it's interesting um another point you mentioned earlier too just with the data exchange uh, is, is just around the data minimization as well so so an area that interests us too with with the call center specific use cases is there, there's still a lot of fraud that happens through call centers today um you're able to put controls in place to, to try to limit it but it it doesn't stop someone from writing an account number or information or just remembering it. So the cool thing about um, some of these layers on top of uh, self-sovereign identity or credentials is the ability to do data minimization where as an organization, if I'm regulatory, if I have um, regulations that like says that I need to collect certain data as an organization, I could do so. But um Someone in a call center doesn't necessarily need to see all the PII or all of the information too, uh, to, to be able to actually <laughs> to perform an authentication type of process. I, I think that's um, still undervalued. I mean, you just think about the fact that if you know you need to verify my age, me being able to give you the attribute of, of proof of age without having to give you all the other elements of my address and where I live and social and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, that that's huge. Um, I mean, I just don't think the, the average person, you know can really think about how many places their information is being captured and stored that really doesn't have any you know, merit to what they're actually trying to do. You know, it's, um, so I, I think it's a great opportunity. And I think for, you know, from a privacy standpoint, um, 
you know, I think I, whether you call it SSI or whatever, I think that that tenant of me owning it and controlling it, I think that's going to just be pervasive. I just, it has to. What is uh, CUFX? Um, so yeah. you, you acquired the CUFX um, some, some months back now. I don't know exactly when, but what is CUFX? No, so um, CFX, actually, it stands for CU Exchange. That would be the FX. And uh, it was really a, an initiative around 10 years ago to really help credit unions connect with other um, um, technology companies. And, and the largest one would be core processors. Um, you may not know the names, but like an FIS or a Fiserv. And they're really the ones that were running their deposit systems. And for a small institution, if they moved from one provider to another provider, it was very costly, painful. Um, so that, that was a big friction point. So the industry created a standard, a protocol, if you would, that would enable credit unions to basically interact with these other fintechs. So it was um, at the time, a, a, uh, it was our standard, credit unions developed it, and we basically asked the rest of the world to, to adapt to the standard. <clears throat> so that was CUFX. Um, the reason we have interest in it and in the, in the world of open technologies, open APIs, interoperability, um, we think one, um, as we think about digital, that verifiable exchange fits really well in terms of what it could be or should be, right? So nobody really is standing on their own private protocols anymore, right? That's, that's kind of moved on. Everybody's in an open banking, open architecture type, type of world. But it still needs to be done in a coordinated fashion so that everybody knows the rules. Everyone has kind of common engagement. So, um, so that's UFX. So that's why we acquired it because, again, digital exchange that fits very well in terms of the, you know, kind of the tenants, if you would. Um, so it's not a, uh, it's not an organization that will sell products, if you would. It's really intended to be um, more um, common for the good. Um, it's the specs and standards are open and available to anyone that that wants to interact. Um, but again, we just basically want to make sure that we're creating those ecosystems. So. Um, for example, we just um, are announcing uh, involvement with FDX um, and the states actually, NACHA, um, Afenis, so other uh, governing bodies for, for interoperability and, and you know, kind of standards. That's really what CUFX is. So um, doesn't surprise me that most people haven't heard about it. It's, it's been kind of inactive for, for a little while, really underappreciated in terms of how it's connected small credit unions um, to the, you know, kind of the, the world's largest players. It's global, uh, very, you know, prevalently used in Canada, for example. Um, so <clears throat> not well known from a public standpoint, but in the underpinning of the plumbing of how credit unions actually connect with, you know, other constituents, um, very well utilized. Yeah, when I was looking at the, just looking into credit unions in the U.S., there's over 5,000 credit unions, the, um, some are big, like the Desert Financial is is what yeah. one of one of the bigger ones. Uh, but the, the average one has uh, an average of two hundred and eighty million or so dollars in assets. That that type of thing. Um, so, so you have a lot of small. You have a lot of local credit unions as well. Does um, the CUFX and Member Pass and the whole strategy does that all fit into the the inclusion story? You were talking about financial inclusion, but does this help with kind of technology inclusion as well for uh, small credit unions? I'd like to think so. Um, I mean, you know, there's obviously a dependency on other technology providers, right? So if you look at how a credit union might be utilizing us, you know, it's not just our tech stuff, right? So, so there's this integration with several other providers. That's always going to be the case. But the simplification of it, I think, is, is the big point. And so if you look at a small credit union who has, you know, 10,000 members, 
you know, just being digital for them is, is a challenge. And literally there, there's a, a marketing campaign in the States for new credit union acquisition. And there's a central URL you go and it's basically gives you all the benefits of, of credit union membership. <clears throat> if you put in a local zip code for me, it'll, it'll direct you to a credit union. And, and when you actually finally get through the page, it'll say, great, print out this form and mail me $5 and you too, fantastic, can be a member, right? So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's horrible. And so you think about those small institutions and how they can able, you know, digital services, it's just a really big pain point for them. So I, I think that's what we're, we're solving is the ease of being digital. And, and does it also, um, on, on one side, you have kind of the financial institutions, the credit unions, on the other side, you have um, still rapidly growing fintech. Um, you, you mentioned fintechs too. So does, does this kind of help a fintech leverage a credit unions, data or infrastructure and vice versa? Um, is that an opportunity too? Yeah, it, it is. Um, I mean, we use collaboration a lot and that's, that's one of the really interesting things about the credit union cooperative group anyway, right? So there's just this different mentality of having collaboration between, you know, multiple, you know, institutions and, and then tech providers. But so if you think about, so for us, for example, member pass, well, well what are we verifying, right? So, so we have, you know, part of it is, is me as a member and my device, and then part of it's actually with credit. Well, that data platform that those records are sitting on is with another core processor, right? So there's another technology provider they're using that we're actually interacting with. So, you know, our API is actually calling into their platform to provide part of the data that we're then actually tokenizing them for the exchange. So you can get all wrapped up in the tech, but, you know, every, everybody has an API and an SDK, for example, right? And that's all interacting with. So, so I would say that's how we're helping to create the ecosystem for them as opposed to them having to go off and develop all of that, you know, gunk or plumbing, if you will, just to be able to give you, you know, the service or access to the service that you want to have. I think the exciting thing too, with kind of um, working with agents rather than than APIs, kind of on that top layer, layer is like once you have built the API connections to the right core processors or to whatever systems, um, these are available. And so you, you talked, you mentioned pr uh, procurement use case uh, earlier. I don't know if this was the exact use case you're talking about, but from um, um, there's. For me, this is the biggest disruptor that I only have to do an API integration once as long as I'm connected to an agent, I could I could leverage these products and services. I don't have to worry about my infrastructure and my infosec and all this stuff doing it. I could just connect directly to it without an API integration, which is huge disruption. No doubt. I mean, that's I mean, you think about that being a game changer in terms of cost and time to market. And I mean, yeah. it, you know, it's massive. It's massive. John, thank you very much for doing this with me today. Uh, very much enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, Hope no, we can do yeah. it again. Yeah, I appreciate the time and uh, congrats to you and um, appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To stay up to speed with future episode releases, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever channel you're listening to it right now. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to me directly. You can find me online. I'm quite active on LinkedIn and Twitter, so I look forward to hearing from you. See you all next time.